Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subjects with interesting people. Emily Jashinsky is one of the most astute political observers on the scene today. She's the culture editor over at The Federalist, including hosting um, Radio Hour very often, their podcast over there. Um, she also works with Young Americans for Freedom at their National Journalism Center. So she works prepping young journalists for their inevitable uh, horror show of a media future. Um, and for the last couple of weeks, she has been guest hosting Hill TV's Rising, which is an incredibly popular independent show that gives voice to, I would say, a kind of populism from both the left and right that rarely gets much airtime on corporate media, media channels, whether those channels are um, sort of aimed towards the right side of the spectrum or the left side of the spectrum. So we're very glad to have her here on High Noon. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much. And then, you know, you have a great radio cadence. You sound like you're on NPR right now. I really love it. It's it's calming. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't I am one of those people who hates the sound of my own voice recorded. So um, I, I like can barely stand to listen to my own voice. It sounds so different than it does in my head. But um, so I'm glad that I sound like NPR to you. But uh, I wanted to start this off with a conversation that you have been weighing in on for years, which is um, a conversation about the media, about the future of media. You've written a couple pieces with Ben Dominich um, about the new Contras is the phrase that you've used, um, which is essentially the phrase you guys have used to describe an independent network of um, media figures that are, are based, I think, primarily on trust built over time in an individual person and do not have the kind of institutional money or backing that say, you know, Fox News on the right or um, NPR on the left or um, for that matter, MSNBC or CNN. Um, so first, what who are the new Contras? Um, what do they represent? And what is the future of a democratized media that has such a, a sort of splintered audience that's built primarily on a rapport with an individual person or a couple people? Yeah, and the answer is, honestly, we just don't know yet. Um, but the new Contras are sort of pioneers in the space, and they're running the experiment in real time. Um, a, a friend of ours, Sagar and Jetty, who hosted Rising for a really long time before he launched Breaking Points with Crystal Ball, which is already wildly successful, um, he, he talks a lot about how we fetishize the mass media, the sense of objectivity that came along with the news media in the era of mass media. And that is a very, very salient point in this context because we, it hasn't always been this way, right? Like we weren't always completely an author Cronkite and the alleged Walter Cronkite model news delivery. That's not always how it was. Um, and so what we're seeing now is with the new Contras, people like Stogger and Crystal, people like Katie Herzog, people like uh, Glenn Greenwald, Andrew Sullivan is a really good example. Barry Weiss is a really good example. People who are heterodox um, and, and heterodox were relative to the cultural left but then neoliberal cultural left and then economic neoliberalism that dominates the political establishment. And you could even go more broad than that and say the ruling class in this country, um, which is a symptom of the sort of educated elite sorting that Charles Murray wrote about, I think very presciently and very helpfully um, just about a decade ago, less than a decade ago. So when you have that happening and you have the outcasts like Andrew Sullivan or Barry Weiss, I mean, both of whom are probably best described as left of center at this point, uh, being sort of thrust out of these legacy newsrooms, they've found uh, landing pads on independent publishing platforms like Patreon and like Substack. And they're actually making a lot of money on those platforms, um, which shows the demand. So on the one hand, uh, the new Contras are the folks who are creating that infrastructure where there is a landing pad, creating and benefiting from the infrastructure that, that serves as a landing pad from the constrictions of legacy media. Um, for dissenters, uh, people who you probably never would have thought of as enemies of the establishment, uh, but are now somehow labeled uh, heterodox dissenters. So uh, creating and pioneering the sort of infrastructure and that landing pad, that's what they're doing. Um, and then this gets into another question of what does the future look like? Is that sustainable or is that a durable trend? Um, and that's really the big question. The example I always use is Stephen Colbert is both the most polarizing and the most successful man in late night television right now. Um, he, he's polarizing. And I would also say he's just really not that funny anymore. He used to be great on Colbert Report. And now he's just, just like it's resistance boomer humor on like 
bad uh, boomer memes. Like he just like rips it straight from bad boomer memes, but he is both the most successful and the most polarizing. And that's because you, to, to win the ratings game in late night television, you no longer have to appeal to the audience that mass media forced you to appeal to, which forced our entertainers to find co- common ground. He doesn't have to put up Johnny Carson's numbers, um, which were, you know, way bigger because there's so much more choice and people who don't like his politics or don't like whatever else, they'll go elsewhere. Um, And so we're seeing the same sorts of trends in news media. Why does the New York Times retract an op-ed that was totally anodyne from Senator Tom Cotton? Um, Because it's actually better for them financially to turn off a huge uh, swath of the country if they're really, really pleasing a smaller slice of the country that will give them their ad dollar, their subscriptions, and that will not take away their subscriptions. So everyone's appealing to niches. And I, this, this has benefits. Um, and this is an entertainment and it's a news. It has benefits. I don't know how durable it is. I don't know, you know, we maybe, maybe at some point we'll see Substack. God forbid, start cracking down on people. Maybe we'll start to see Patreon doing that again as well. Um, we, we don't know. And there, are, there are upsides, there are downsides. And right now we're just sort of in this adjustment period where we're the guinea pigs um, who are sorting all of it out. Yeah, you, you, you've said multiple times in that answer you were talking about mass media, right? And the fact that we really don't have a mass media anymore what we have are these like little silos these niches um and that you can you can be very successful appealing to a particular niche but even the people that you've listed out right as part of this new contras um group a lot of them have wildly different views from one another and they're not necessarily overlapping audiences and think that would I I don't know what the overlapping audience is for say um, rising and for example Andrew Sullivan right (laughs) Um, Andrew Sullivan is very much in the center Barry Weiss as well so there's what's interesting about this moment is you're seeing huge demand for both the populist left and populist right which might be termed by people in the middle as quote-unquote extreme and you're seeing a huge resurgence of an audience for the center um, that has migrated out of these these legacy institutions once we've seen kind of a, a takeover there that has made it impossible for views in the center to actually be expressed through those outlets. But I mean, do you worry, you said there are some upsides and downsides. I mean, do you worry about the fact that we won't have a common body of reference anymore? I mean, these different outlets they're covering completely different stories. They're often um, giving not just different opinions, but different facts, right? Um, and I'm not at all nostalgic for the three channel days. And in fact, I think that those three channel days were an aberration in America from a wildly partisan media um, it, throughout most of the 19th century. But I mean, do you worry that because we are already so polarized, what this movement in media will will exasperate that in some way. It'll make it worse. It'll um, make it so that we can barely have conversations with each other. If, if you don't watch the same bundle of news shows as I do or listen to the same podcast as I do, um, we literally have totally different perceptions of what the news of the day is and, and no way to talk about it with each other. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm worried about polarization in the context of secularization, um, and and that that is to say that in this era of postmodernism, it's not only that you have partisan outlets as historically we have sort of spinning different facts. That's one thing, but we actually sort of don't agree on what constitutes a fact anymore, um, and I think that's getting into a really dangerous place when we cannot agree on sort of fundamentals. And these are things the left mocks the right for talking about or at least talking about at length and doesn't really want to talk about. And I'm talking about the populist left. They really don't want to talk about these things, although there are some people who are willing to have the conversation when they feel it's warranted. Um, But I I think the right is reasonably much more concerned about our inability to literally define biological sex and to have a common understanding of biological sex than the left is. That is a source of major strife. Um, the, The definition of what constitutes racism 
Ibram X. Kendi is a best-selling author in this country, and, and he defines racism as basically anything that dissents for a moment from full critical race dogma, from full progressive dogma. That's extremely, extremely dangerous um, because we're not even sharing the, the same definitions of really basic, basic words and, and basic facts. Um, the left loves to talk about capital S science, but you know, when it comes to biology, that's sort of like all out the window. Um, and they're sort of like grasping at straws to define, uh, define down biology to different, to different things. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply concerned about our lack of sort of common ground. That's one thing that mass media absolutely fostered. Um, and you know, it, it's not to say it was always good, but it, it is sort of amazing to go watch what now feels like relics of the mass media era. I, I wrote this, I wrote about this in the context of the Friends reunion, actually, which really resisted the pressures to siloize and nicheify um, and just was positive. It wasn't this sort of like, it didn't feel like it belonged in 2021. It felt like something, um, you know, from, from days past, mostly just because it was positive and it w- had mass appeal. Um, and, you know, there's a reason that millennials are stuck in the friends loop and stuck in the office loop. Um, despite the fact that Steve Carell himself has said it would be impossible to make the office anymore in this sort of climate. Um, and so it's just, I'm very concerned about that uh, for the reason that like, yes, we're all going to be getting different information, different spin on that information. Um, and maybe there isn't a big crossover audience between rising and Barry Weiss, but maybe, um, on the other hand, if we're just doing sort of the Substack uh, forwarding and sort of like getting news from our friends and, and through text messages, and however, you know, people don't aren't wedded to these papers that they subscribe to because they paid for it, right? And they don't they don't pay for this other magazine or they don't pay for this other paper. Um, you know, you're you're getting more information, but um, I'm I'm very very concerned that when we're all um, isolating in those spaces, we become hardened to dissent. And that's what's already happened on the left. And I think dangerously so it kind of happened to the right on economics. And I think dangerously so, but when you, when you sort of harden yourself against, uh, criticism, that's a, that's going to make it even more difficult for us, you know, to bridge some of these differences. Yeah. At the end, that's really what concerns me as well. Um, I, was not one of those people who was always like worried about uh, polarization in Washington and, and um, the fact that nothing gets done because Republicans and Democrats don't agree. I mean, I always saw this as a reflection of the fact that we don't agree as a country um, and our system essentially working as it should to reflect that polarization. Um, But I finally find myself worrying about it. And I, I think you just put your finger on the most concerning aspect of it is that it's not just even the way that I phrased it with the fact that we have different news sources. Um, it's it's we ha- are losing any kind of neutral cultural ground that if not universal is perhaps, you know, an 80 percent proposition. Um, and that goes along with the fact that we've lost any. Um, even 10,000 foot level sentences. I recently challenged um, a friend of mine um, who's on the left to define, to give me even a very 10,000 foot sentence that would be agreed to by 80% of the American people. And it's Mm. really difficult without descending into complete meaninglessness, right? It's really difficult to come up with something like that. I mean, you pointed to one aspect of this recently when you talked about perhaps there being a real barrier between the different types of anti-establishment movements, um, whether they're coming from the left or the right. When you said that one side um, has a disdain for the country's history and for sort of an American identity, um, and the other has a reverence for that identity. And it was in the context of talking about um, uh, New York Times editorial board members' uh, comments about how she saw trucks with American flags on them and who was very, very disturbed by um, the, this, this uh, vision of um, trucks, pickup trucks with American flags on it. But um, is this going to short circuit any kind of, of genuine 
crossover rebellion against what we might call the like the managerial class or this conglomeration of, of uh, media establishment gatekeepers, um, political establishment gatekeepers in both Republican and Democratic parties. Um, and, you know, uh, gatekeepers, for example, in universities and Hollywood and corporate and in, in corporations and corporate boards. Right. Um, there seems to be a broad critique that our elites have failed us. Hmm. Um, but to your point, do we differ so much um, among the people who understand that, that there's very little is it a sort of divide and conquer move, right? Is it, is it possible that the technocratic class will stay in power, even though the vast majority of people think they're failures at their jobs, because we fundamentally cannot agree on what, what that critique actually looks like, and more, more importantly, what happens after that critique is implemented? Yeah, it, it, this is something that I was thinking about recently, because of a conversation that I got into on air with Ryan Grimm, who's the DC bureau chief of the intercept. Um, and in the aftermath of our exchange, which the left, by the way, loved because they saw it as a confirmation of the sort of Howard Zinn vision of history of American history. And I actually, I just taped a podcast with your wonderful husband, Jarrett on uh, this very issue on sort of the Zinnification of the American mind, which um, has programmed people to have this very sort of dorm room notion and this dorm room notion of like, well, they didn't teach me about Columbus's atrocities in history class. So anybody who celebrates Columbus Day is an idiot. Um, and that mentality, I guess I learned, and Ryan is not of this mentality. I'm not saying that, but there are a whole lot of people. It's more widespread on sort of the Bernie left than um, people might realize. It was, it's more widespread than I realized, actually. And what that sort of sparked in me was this, I guess, I guess this conflict over there's a lot to be made for the so-called political realignment. And I think it's very meaningful when we're talking about average voters, you know, people who there's, there's a district in my home state of Wisconsin uh, that my mom grew up in and that we spent a lot of time in um, rural district that was represented by Democrat David Obie for years and years and years, decades, like four decades and flipped at the tea party before Trump. This district flipped in 2010 um, when Tron Duffy was elected and has been so deeply pro-Trump for years now. You know, it's, it's one of those sort of classic cases of a Trump district where there aren't just yard signs. There are yard like <laughs> walls. <laughs> um, and so and not a small number of American flags. Yes. No small number of American <laughs> flags. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where. I don't want to just sit and sort of spin our wheels in these abstract terms because, you know, there, there is sort of like meaningful, there's clearly meat to the concept of the realignment. But um, when that, when the rubber meets the road here in Washington and when policy is actually getting made and when, you know, the momentum for policy is, is building in the media, we're in a really, I think, tough situation when, there's this very deep-seated, like at the end of the day, what do I think Ilhan Omar wants to preserve or protect in the United States of America? How does that sort of work together with um, somebody like Josh Hawley, who is an American exceptionalist? You know, how do you, at the end of the day, move forward? I mean, maybe in the short term, there's agreement that can be found on antitrust legislation and monopolies and, and big tech. Um, but how can these this sort of realignment occur? I mean, a lot of people would ask, how can the realignment occur in the sort of political climate where you're not allowed to talk to anybody who disagrees? I think the new Contras are actually sort of proving that wrong, that there's such demand for it, that you can create these landing pads and you can um, be rewarded actually by the market for doing something like that. But it, in the, so in the short term, I get it. In the long term, I don't know where it goes when, you know, you have a, an increasing number of people that actually are, are sort of like really uh, deeply skeptical of the country in a sort of 1619 Zinian way, um, trying to come together with people who believe that America is, is exceptional and that the founding documents are, um, you know, sort of the greatest roadmap to Republican governance and the, and the best sort of system for economics and government that has ever graced this earth. Imperfect as it is, by the way, um, you know, imperfect as it is and historically has been, 
um, you know, in the scope and the sweep of human history, I just have a hard time figuring out, you know, what, what would be better. And so bridging that gap is enormously difficult, I think. Yeah. Um, another critique uh, that you've, you've sort of leveled, I think, at people within this new Contra space, right, um, has been the assumption of primacy of economics over everything, right? Um, and I want to read something um, that you, I believe, is part of one of your radars um, recently when you were filling in on Rising, um, and that is what the building left-right populist consensus lacks is adequate requisite re recognition that rising wages, UBI, and targeted cash transfers won't boost the working class without changes that money alone cannot induce, be it the marriage rate or the fertility rate. Um, I think Anna Katyan um, of Red Scare has made some of the best arguments in favor of the primacy of economics. Um, so, for example, uh, her analysis of, of sort of girl boss feminism, right, <laughs> is that it's essentially a psychological response. It's a cope. Right. It's a cope to um, for a generation that graduated into the you know 2009 economic crisis um, that never really built any kind of foundational wealth. And there's a lot of evidence to back that up that, you know, our generation um, is going to be uh, unfortunately isn't is, is behind where our parents were at the same time, i.e. Um, in terms of, of wealth building, we're actually going backwards. And so that the folks who make that critique say essentially some of these cultural trends um, that you're arguing against are one of two things. One, they're a cope, um, just like girl boss feminism is a psychological cope for not having the economic stability uh, to enter into marriage and have children. Um, and then the second category of these things are these are just red meat issues to distract us from, quote unquote, the real issue, right? And the real issues are always economic. It's kind of a what's the matter with Kansas sort of critique, right? Um, that why why don't people see that the most important issues are healthcare and the minimum wage um, versus, for example, men and women's sports or um, the redefinition of sex that you you mentioned earlier, um, or or critical race theory in schools or any number of of these cultural flashpoints. Um, you know, what is your response to? I guess maybe first that that what's the matter with Kansas critique because I actually think it's kind of easier to deal with on the face of it, and then the deeper critique that I think. Um, Anacontian levels, which is that actually economic instability is driving some of these um, what might be called like progressive cultural advancements um, that are shifting us very quickly to the left culturally, that in fact, behind a lot of the psychological drive of that is in fact economics. Yeah, it's, it's a really tough equation to solve. And I think probably these these variables are inextricably intertwined and we can't um, actually unwind them and, and sort of find a, a single root. I mean, one of the examples that I've been thinking a lot about recently is birth control. Um, and, and that may sound ridiculous, but let's, if we, if we take a step back and sort of examine birth control's effect on the culture and on economics, um, birth control actually had and is continuing to have in a, a massive a massive impact on the the economic stations of women in this country and on our entire system. Um, the, the sort of the, and again, that's like, it's difficult to trace exactly to what degree we can attribute that specifically to birth control, um, but that effect obviously exists, um, and, and the post sexual revolution effect obviously exists. Um, and so, if we're looking at that, there's there's a demand that made birth control successful. Right. And that demand is both economic and cultural because there are people who make decisions that are not in their economic interest for cultural reasons. Um, and they're doing that for at the end of the day, that's culture. Um, and so in you, you also have to say, well, somebody created this product. There was a lot of science that went into the, the creation of a product like birth control. Um, and, you know, that has to happen that that has to happen in a cultural climate right you know what enabled uh these sorts of scientists and the funders of their work to create a product like this with cultural and economic 
implications. There was the funding, of course, right? Like there's there are the financial incentives that in the market system drive that, but it's also only happening because they probably felt a certain degree of cultural comfort or or maybe not. Um, but, and at the end of the day, why is birth control something that a human being would demand? Because sex without consequences <laughs> is in demand. And, and that, at the end of the day, is, again, both that's, that is both a cultural and economic source of demand, because a huge part of the reason people want to have um, sex without the, the consequence, to put it pejoratively, um, maybe inaccurately, of childbirth and pregnancy, um, you know, a lot of people can't afford it. And a lot of people don't want to have to afford it. A lot of people don't want to have to drop out of the workforce. Um, and and then on the other hand, it's just sort of the there's the hedonistic um, aspect of why people would want to have sex without the the consequence of pregnancy. And so just like zeroing in on that one example, you can see how I think there's a really like inextricable intertwinement of these variables um, that sort of at the end of the day. I keep saying at the end of the day, because probably because it is at the end of the day, and I, I sort of feel like I'm perpetually at the end of the day over the course of these last three weeks as I've been forced to get out of bed at like six in the morning, but um, it, it's it's hard to separate them. So even if you take like Anna Kachin's examples, if you keep drilling down every single time, you uncover a cultural motive that enabled the economic one and vice versa. Um, and I think the, the sort of best way to think about that is that we exist where our, we sort of have in, in a world where we, we have both of those motivations um, sort of teasing us constantly and why that is because ultimately they both sort of prey on, on human impulse and, and human temptation um, and we go in different directions. So it, it's, it's very important to, I think, focus on economics a lot of times when we over-focus on culture. Um, you know, I think there, were, there was too little focus on the economics that was driving, say, support for Donald Trump. Um, in 2016, but then I think there was too little focus on the economic or on the culture that was driving support for Donald Trump in 2020, um, and, and so I think sometimes we just focus in the wrong place. Um, but at the end of the day, I think you know they are both they're very closely connected. You know, one reason I've always found that argument unconvincing is because under Donald Trump, we did have what he called a blue collar boom, not mm -hmm. without, you know, backing in terms of the data. Um, we had an economic boom that unlike the past 30 years really did distribute its benefits more, um, uh, more evenly among the various socioeconomic classes of America, uh, where you actually did see working families have a real increase in wages, uh, where you did see a job market where, um, the employee finally had uh, the negotiating power um, in, in the relationship with capital, right? Because there was a shortage um, um, and there, there was such a boom in the economy that there were many jobs available. Um, one of the most remarkable statistics from that period to me was there was this um, big uptick in people quitting their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and People, uh, I, I think some folks on Fox Business or whatever got asked about it and they were like, oh, what do you think? Is this worrying? You know, what does this mean about the economy? And I said, it's really simple. They're getting rid of jobs that they don't want to be in because they can get a better one. Like that's the best indication that your economy is in a good place when people are actually able to quit the jobs that perhaps they have wanted to for a very long time because they have social leverage in the market. But with all of that success... You know, nobody looks back at 2018 and thinks, oh, well, you know, we were all getting along so much better then, <laughs> right? Um, we, we were all such one big happy family and all of these red meat cultural issues just faded into the background. No, they came to even more prominence in a very fundamental way, which to me would at least indicate that um, when the economic indicators are going in the right direction, the fact that these cultural issues just keep resurfacing means that they can't be subhumed into economics. I, I agree with you that there are economic drivers here, but, um, you know, I, I think it's kind of um, wrong to, to tell people that it's more important uh, that and always economic, it's always the economy stupid, right? Like mm -hmm. um, that it's always more important to, to think about economic issues than um, cultural ones. But 
you know, you've, you've really been making this point um, for a long time in front of a lot of different audiences, this, this point about, um, you know, the fact that there's not just a um, economic, increasing economic, let's, let's call it uh, provocatively an oligopoly, right? Um, <laughs> that there's increasing consolidation in market power, but to point to this increasing consolidation in cultural power, whether that's in the production of pop culture or movies, or whether that's within the media sphere itself, um, or whether it's corporations heavily weighing in on cultural debates like voting laws or, um, you know, men and women's sports or um, a dozen other issues that both of us could, could list off, you know, um, why is it important to talk about cultural monopoly um but but also on the flip side since we're both so heavily into the culture side let's let's throw the economic team a bone here you know why is it that you know how how does the economic power these corporations have um intertwine itself with their cultural power yeah that's that is absolutely key i mean the, the only Facebook gets with with what it does because it, it has the monopoly and so cultural monopoly in that case i think is very much downstream of their economic monopoly on the other hand however the cultural monopoly um of places like let's say comcast um and it, which affects you know what gets broadcast on everywhere from msnbc to the today show to literally like bravo the cultural economic the cultural monopoly that exists there it, it just exists across all of our corporations, right? Like that, the 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 left has a the cultural left has a cultural monopoly uh, in C suites and in academia and you know everywhere. Basically, they don't let. And part of that is because of the, the anti-competitive behavior, the, the anti-competitive, I guess, social and, and intellectual behavior um, that is, you know, what are you supposed to do? There's an example unfolding literally right now as we're talking where Reason, um, the libertarian magazine, the excellent libertarian magazine, I should say, um, had one of its its videos on the development of um basically like like DIY COVID vaccines banned from YouTube. And people are sort of dunking on reason and saying, build your own YouTube, build your own YouTube, build your own YouTube. But there's kind of a good point to that, right? Like when Parler tried to be a competitor to Twitter, it was shut down, not by Twitter. It was shut down by um, all of these other tech companies that in which the cultural left enforces a monopoly. Um, and, and that's, you know, <laughs> they basically bulldozed our culture where you have have this like wide swath of the American public. I mean, think of think of the the uh, prominence of the term Latinx, so the pro proliferation of the term Latinx, which sort of crashed and burned over the course of the Democratic primary. I think Elizabeth Warren used it like the first minute of the first. And then the candidates like pretty much dropped it because they had to go out into the field and talk to people. Um, and, you know, it was just sort of a it's one of those things where they, they realized that it pulled at like. 10% with like actual Hispanic voters. Um, but, you know, that's it, what we're seeing just across the board is the bulldozing of our culture because the left sort of has this intellectual monopoly across all of our institutions. And so they can do it because what are you going to do? Go build another Silicon Valley? Are you going to go build another media conglomerate um, with what? people with what because our educated elites have sorted to the point where it, even at like fox corporation i'm sure their human resources department hands out the same uh or at least some of the same nonsense that other major media corporations hand out um and i'm, I'm sure that's happening because it's like well from what pool are you going to hire? Um, because everyone has gone through the academic system where again, there's an intellectual monopoly because there was never any like real economic competition in academia over the past you know few years, which is why tuition is insanely high. Um, and in that environment, it's like, okay, well, where are you going to send your kid? I mean, you can send your kid to Hillsdale, um, but that's pretty much it. Are you going to send your kid to, um, you know, let's say I'm from Wisconsin, you're going to send them to University of Wisconsin as opposed to sending them to Harvard? Okay, sure, but they're still going to get the same stuff, whether it's at the University of Wisconsin, wherever it is. I mean, obviously, there are some great Christian private schools, um, even those have a lot of sort of gripping 
um, radical leftism, and that's hyperbole. And at, at the end, it's just like, what are you supposed to do when all of our institu- institutions, because of the patterns of elite sorting, are, you know, the, there's the outsized power in the hands of educated cultural leftists. And at, at that point, they're able to exert that outsized power to really try to bulldoze and to shape the norms. And they have intimidated a swath, a wide swath of the public, of the public out of retaining what feels like to them their dignity. When they go to a PTA meeting and someone's trying to read their their five-year-old child, I am jazz in a a kindergarten class, and they don't feel comfortable standing up for their child because they don't want something worse to happen to their child, to be ostracized socially, to to deal with the embarrassment of their parents being dragged out or hauled out in media, being filmed to Instagram and, and Facebook and TikTok and going viral for being a bigot. Nobody wants to deal with that. So what are you supposed to do? You know, what, what's the role of the retreat of religion? Because you've now mentioned it a couple times um, in in all of this, because it's certainly observationally true to me, um, even as an atheist, that, uh, for example, in my uh, my hometown of Palo Alto, part of the reason that it was so critical to sort your kids and make sure that your kids get sorted into the highest bracket possible in terms of what you're referring to as elite sorting, which is really what the function of modern universities um, are. They are indoctrination centers for the activist left and they are elite sorting mechanisms. And those two functions and must hedge be funds. separated. They're yeah. also hedge funds, as J.D. Vance says. That's true. Um, they really <laughs> are, actually. Harvard um, and Yale both have about $40 billion each in endowment funds, which is a pretty sizable hedge fund. Um, but but in any case, um, you know, part of the reason I think that that is such a, like, that is viewed as such a critical thing to make sure that your kid gets sorted into the elite is at least observationally seems to me to be that there's not a lot of other identity or deeper um, Mm -hmm. things to be proud of about ourselves. And I think that's also why we're, and perhaps um, you, you agree with this, why we're also emphasizing things like race um, to a degree that 20 years ago or 30 years ago would have been completely crazy. Um, as an identity, we, and, and that does make me wonder about that, how our society is becoming post-Christian and therefore this is having all kinds of effects from, you know, this kind of rat race, making the rat race and the material um, be the exclusive uh, prize to be sought. And then on the flip side, um, not really moderating a lot of those materialist impulses, those impulses that capitalism so well um, coordinates into prosperity, um, but then are sort of morally neutral in themselves at best, right? Um, You know, what has been the role of largely a retreat from religion, um, the rise of the nuns, as as they call it, right? N-O-N-E. You know, what's the post-Christian America going to look like? Yeah, and and to me, it's not even just post-Christian. It's sort of post. Um, it's it's like it's, excuse me, I need more kombucha. Um, it's it's post. Um, speaking like a like a, Lib. a Lib. true coastal. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's 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 not just post-Christian. It's post. Uh, it's postmodern at the end of the day. I think I, I think it's best described as postmodern or it's secular because what it's 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 untethered from the sense that objectivity is attainable. Um, and, and that's a huge, huge, I think, downstream effect as somebody who works with students all the time, by the way. Um, and speaks to a lot of students, it's sort of amazing to me how untethered they are from, and and they want something more, right? Like they want to have some sort of moral order that feels, um, 
that feels, let's see, let's say true. It feels right and true and grounded in something. Um, they want that, but they really don't have that. And because it's uh, in large part because, you know, we are, the, the wheels have just sort of come off um, and it's it, it snowballed. And then at a certain point, the wheels just sort of came off. That's kind of a mixed metaphor there. But um, the point is that the, the left sort of got so much momentum that we, we came to this point where we're now saying that obesity is healthy. That sounds like a crazy example. It might sound like a stupid red meat cultural example, but do you understand how confusing that is for a child brought up in a culture that teaches that obesity is healthy? We don't have standards of objective beauty anymore. And that's sort of telegraphed through very subtle signals that I think are having a very powerful effect because as you are sort of in your formative years, that's enormously confusing because there are some things you know innately as a human and you seek innately as a human human, that society tells you cannot be answered with any sort of sense of moral clarity. And again, like that's incredibly confusing. And when we're sort of, the more that we are untethered from that, the more I just worry that we'll ever be able to sort of come back. You know, a lot of people like to make the argument that um, this is a the, the sort of wokeism is a religion. And I think, of course, obviously there are some parallels to it. I don't think it's true to say that it's a substitute for religion. It might be an attempted substitute, but it doesn't account for the afterlife. And I'm not trying to sort of like, you know, just just exist in this abstract space. But that's something that real people think about all the time. It, it, it's a practical question of life that occurs to people all of the time. You know, what, what am I doing here? What is this? What am I going to do when it's all over? What if it all ended today? Um, and that's the, <laughs> that has like a really, that has real consequences on people's lives. And when you sort of struggle to even know that like, I'm holding a pen right now, when you, when you struggle to come up to an an, with an answer to what that is, um, that, that is satisfying to you as a human being, boy, we get into some really dangerous territory, territory um, where and I think that's a lot of that's in a cultural space. I think you see a lot of it also in our totally morally bankrupt billionaire class, um, which I think doesn't compare well to other billionaire classes for all of the, the terrible flaws that they had. Um, this was actually pointed out in a recent Jacobin essay that I continue to cite. There was a, a kind of a moral order to like the, the wasps of yore, which had a million different terrible flaws. Um, but I don't, I, I think our morally bankrupt billionaire class right now um, is just <laughs> like what, what higher purpose do they have? Um, and I think that's, we see that in their conduct in the way they conduct their businesses and the way they sort of accrue and hoard their wealth. Um, and in the way that like, if you look at someone like Jeff Bezos, who's a very easy villain um, and he's a very obvious villain, um, you know, his net worth will spike. And then we hear over the course of the pandemic and then, you know, he, the benefits that the, the people in the, the bottom rung of the Amazon ladder actually reaped from this massive spike in profits are minimal compared to what his net worth, you know, happened to his net worth. And it's just all to say that where I think there's, there's just a, our elites are acting in a highly secularized, secularized environment and sort of downstream of that real people are, are struggling with what, like there, there are actual arguments made in college campuses that objectivity um, and free expression and free speech are racist concepts rooted in white supremacy. Um, and when you sort of tear down that foundation and you attack that foundation, which I think everybody should question, right? We should all be questioning the foundation. We should, you know, we should go through that phase of our lives um, and we should sort of constantly be willing and, and open-minded enough to sort of check ourselves and, and ask these questions. But when you tear down that foundation altogether um, and, and stigmatize even stigmatize it entirely we're, we're going off the rails um, what you're really talking about is psychology right when we talk about purpose when we talk about um, answering some of these questions of life right about the afterlife about death about purpose within life um, a lot of the questions that you know religion gives answers to and different religions give different answers but ultimately um, I think I think you're right that uh, wokeism as a religion fails to give those kinds of answers, um, or at least it grounds it entire those answers entirely in the material, which is ultimately mm. unsatisfying. Um, 
that's a, a materialism is a key aspect of it. And I, I didn't use that phrase, but it's completely true that we sort of like, and you see that in the girl boss mentality, the hashtag girl boss mentality, which is ultimately a materialist philosophy that governs a lot of our pop culture. And I think is, is making a lot of women sort of think about what their priorities are and is, is steering them in one very materialist direction. I, I just, I just wanted to jump in and say, I think that is, that is the right phrase for what we see. Yeah, but it's it's I think it's the right phrase because what we are ultimately talking about here is a psychological outlook, right? Um and I wanted to get your take on how that psychological outlook and how we have I mean, I think all the time about the sort of the Soviet new man hmm. and what a failure um in many ways that was, or they didn't try to train um, you know, self-interest out of the human person um, unsuccessfully, right? It just pops up in, in different ways. And in fact, if you distort that kind of self-interest, you get um, outcomes that are way worse than like in a capitalist system where you embrace that, that sort of economic self-interest. Um, but it seems to me that this kind of pure materialism um, and then finding your purpose through two, two, two routes, right? It's, it's, you accumulate the best material situation that you can if you're Jeff Bezos, right? Um, and then you solve your conscience and to the extent that you interact at all with the non-material, it's, it goes into this crusade around, you know, race, gender, um, whatever else, this crusade towards an equitable society, let's say, <laughs> It's it's produced. I, I wonder what you would say about the psychological traits we seem to be creating in our own new men, right? Our our new woke men and women, um, because it seems to me that they are very disturbingly devoid of actual empathy hmm. for other people, um, and at the same time, there's this very performative, um, sort of traumatic. <laughs> victimhood chasing, right? Um, we talk now in language, therapeutic language that um, I think people would have been embarrassed to to speak about even in, in that way, even to their therapists, like <laughs> um, just a couple decades ago. And now it's, it is literally the language of power in, in the political stage. It, are, are we shaping a new man here um, who has some very, disturbing psychological traits and what, I mean, how would you connect the two topics here? Like the drive to, obviously there is some drive that was once oriented towards religion and perhaps is now oriented in these different directions. Um, but I mean, if, if we know it by its fruits, it seems like it's producing some very undesirable psychological traits in, in people. Yeah. I mean, you just use the phrase new man. Um, and, Part of a key part of that phrase is the the word man, um, and and you talked also about how people sort of perform into performatively expect to be rewarded for things they probably would have been embarrassed to say in the privacy of a, a therapy room um, not long ago. And I mean, just look at the sort of trait of stoicism, right? That is is kind of a male instinct um, that is being sort of there's there's been a very deliberate effort to help help men unlearn that instinct. Um, and it's, again, how confusing is that if you're a man and you, you want to sort of do one thing and you're told to do another thing, but it doesn't, you know, like this is, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, obviously, but I think this is sort of a really um, fertile, this is really fertile ground for psychological inquiry to the extent that free inquiry can still be conducted in our academies. And, uh, very recently, Katie Herzog has been reporting on how doctors do not feel comfortable, um, you know, in engaging in really free inqu inquiry in their own fields of research. But the materialism is, I think, what is sort of, I think people have been grappling with, especially some like Catholics on the new right, Catholic thinkers on the new right, is how difficult it is to extricate our culture of materialism from our culture of capitalism. 
And I'm a pretty um, unabashed capitalist. Uh, you know, I'm, I hate cronyism just as much as any progressive. And I think that's important. But I also think that markets have lifted more people out of poverty than anything ever. Um, and I, I think it's been, you know, just a, a remarkable sign of human progress. And uh, but but still, <laughs> it's almost as though the balance has now shifted. The pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. And you, you have this question of like, hmm. Maybe this materialism is a function of us sort of out-teching ourselves, right? Of of inventing ourselves out of human nature. Um, and to, you can return to the example of birth control, uh, and that that would be a little. That's a little hot. Uh, it's a little. It's a. It's a little controversial. I know, but we probably don't spend enough time thinking about how dramatically it affected the relationships between men and women, um, when women in work and women and children. Um, and it, it's one of those things that technology allowed us and enabled us to do. And guess what technology also enabled us to do? It enabled us to um, live really far away from our families. And, um, you know, that's something that Inez and I both know, and many people in our situations both know, we don't sort of just move into another house in the same town, um, as has probably been customary for the course of human history, literally. I mean, we are supposed to have family ties. We are supposed to, you know, have more children. We are supposed to have, you could, you'd go down the line. Um, and, and this is a conversation that Inez and I have had on, on personal levels after um, a couple of Aperol spritzes with Inez adds, what do you, you don't get it with Aperol. You get it with, um, I put Campari. I make Campari spritz. Campari. I highly recommend this to all listeners is make, try, try a Aperol spritz, but with Campari. But she makes me look like a rube anytime we order these. Uh, but it, it's, <laughs> but the, the point is the broader point is that, um, I, I do think that the Western system of free markets has enabled a growth in technological advancement that sort of is allowing us to escape human nature. Um, I have a, there's a Facebook device, a, a Facebook VR device, and it's sort of, it's frightening to think of how that technology can develop because I can already sit and play ping pong on it for like five hours if I want to, and I'm not even a video game person. Uh, so like, I don't even know people who are video game people uh, resist the sort of temptation to dip into a fantasy land and, and stay comfortable there. But, um, yeah, I, I, you know, free markets are at the whims of human beings at the end of the day, and, and human beings are flawed, and human beings are fallen. And I guess if we can't even have that sort of fundamental agree, agreement, obviously, that's sort of the Christian worldview that, that human beings are, are flawed, and there are other faiths that share that, too. Um, but gosh, it, it just irks me to even hear people on the right sometimes say, like, Oh, humans, they're ultimately good. You know, it's so good to see, you know, at the end of the day, the moral arc of history bends towards us. No, it, it really does. <laughs> because the moral arc of history is governed by human beings um, who have free will and um, are, they tend to be pretty flawed and, and pretty fallen. And we know that. So when you, when you create prosperity and wealth at the the rate that has lifted so many people out of poverty, I think it's also taking us in a very human, but very frightening direction. And I think the materialism is a symptom of that. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, capitalism is, is a great engine at producing what human beings want, but what human beings want is never uh, exactly what we need. We know this uh, if, if we are at all skeptical about about the nature of man. Um, <laughs> but I, I want to close out by asking you a question that's been bothering me or I've been wrestling with throughout this show or kind of going back and forth on. Because on the one hand, when we talk about the absolute um, failure of our elite and our institutions, you know, there's a part of me that just cheers any destruction of um, this managerial class that I believe has so deeply failed, um, not only has so deeply failed America, but um, is so thoroughly mediocre, right? I, I'm a conservative. I don't mm. have a problem with hierarchy or institution, but it seems to me that a lot of the people who are considered elite in our society and, and what Spencer Clavin would say, we give our honors to as a society yeah. are just so deeply and thoroughly mediocre that I cheer their collapse and exposure. Um, but on the other hand, I think about how hard it is 
the project of building new institutions, right? Mm. Um, and when I think about the founding of this country and, um, you know, <laughs> how our revolution has been one of, and even ar within the, the class of arguable um, that have been brought something better than what came before, right? And even, the, of course, the, the Catholic integralists that you referred to, they would dispute that as well. But um, as right there, <laughs> there's at most one revolution um, in human history that I can think of that built better institutions than it tore down. And when I think about you know, all the things we've been talking about during this hour and the psychological fragility of people in our age and their inability to set aside their narcissism um, for anything approaching a common good, not with capital letters, just any kind of, of common good. Um, I'm, I'm terrified of what happens when we knock down those, that, that fence, right. Um, to use the Burkean, and uh, expression when we when we start to destroy these institutions, you know, are you pessimistic or optimistic about what is built after that? I'm enormously pessimistic because, <laughs> and not to sort of bring everybody down. Um, this uh, is, I, I, I told Heather McDonald this as well. This is a safe space for pessimism. <laughs> well, it sort of necessarily it necessarily is a safe space for for pessimism because I don't think you can. I, I speak to some people who are optimistic from time to time because I do Federalist Radio Hour um, with a, a really interesting array of guests and. People's optimism really confuses me. I, I don't know how you can walk away um, from all of this when we can't even, you know, you just said common good, but without the capital C or the capital G, we can't even agree on what is a good anymore. We had sections of the, the media defending rioting last year uh, at a high level than we would have seen um, in, in years past, because I think this sort of concept of like what constitutes fundamentally what constitutes good and what constitutes bad um, is becoming debatable, right? It's, it's kind of outrageous to think about. And so uh, I, that is what would have to change um, for all of this to change. When you talk about the, the thorough mediocrity of the elites, I mean, that's a stems from the groupthink, right? Because if you don't let dissent into your ranks, you will not, iron will not be allowed to sharpen iron. You will never be sharper. You will always remain dull because you are not open to challenges. And in that, you will just sort of calcify um, into this, you know, demented version of what your ideology and your worldview should be. And I don't see that our market right now or that our system or that our will to regulate, which I don't have much will to regulate and I never really have, um, although I, I always want to regulate the cronyists, um, but I don't see that we have the sort of antibodies, right? Like I don't, I think this is the greatest system of government that has ever existed. I'm not seeing a whole lot of signs that it can withstand this revolution that's not only a sort of cultural leftist revolution, but it's a technology revolution. Um, speaking of the ways that we sort of um, interact with each other on a very fundamentally different human level, we are now constantly interacting and confronting opinions from people we don't know um, from all over the world with different backgrounds and different communities and different ideas. And a lot of them are anonymous. And this is now a huge part of just our everyday existence. It is ambient it is accessible to us at any given moment of the day and uh that was sort of pitched initially as a good thing by silicon valley and i think um what it has exposed is the, the fall of man uh, very clearly and, and for all to see on a second by second basis um and so we're i don't think you can put the tech genie back in the bottle um you know there's some sort of like there are some Kickstarters that have tried to get off the ground with uh, anti-smartphone type devices. Um, and, you know, you, even those. Like, so I, I'm sort of just like looking at the market and looking at the culture to see, you know, there are some signs and the new Contras are a great example um, to bring this conversation full circle, a great example of the market's slow response. So it's possible that we're just in an adjustment period, right? That this will sort out when people sort of decide again what is right and what is good and we'll still have challenges 
challenges, but maybe we can at least sort of root out the, the mainstreaming of insanity from our culture. But that's a Herculean task because of the way that uh, the, the sort of the bulldozing of all of our institutions and the intellectual monopoly, it's, it's going to be nearly impossible in my view to break up just because of our sort of dependence on technology and the way that technologies um, sort of conditions us on a second by second basis in our everyday life um, to rely on it. I just don't know how you break that. So I'm I'm incredibly pessimistic, <laughs> but uh, you know we'll we'll see where it goes. And as uh, at the end of the day, there'll always be Campari. <laughs> um, well, at least until that runs dry. No, I one of the most disturbing things um, about growing up in Silicon Valley is is seeing that the people who genuinely thought if they connected the world, there would be world peace. <laughs> become in charge or, or rise to positions of power, ultimate power um, in our society. But Emily, thank you uh, so much for, for coming on High Noon. Um, you can watch Emily on Rising um, and you can also read her work at The Federalist. You can listen to her uh, on The Federalist Radio Hour. Um, and, and if you are a young journalist, you can even learn from Emily uh, through GAF's NJC program. So um Thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send your comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by uh, hitting that subscribe button, leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org, which is the only one out of those things that is not controlled by a tech company. Be brave. We'll see you next time on High Noon.